The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. So this week, and thank you for joining us again this week on Just Love, we're going to be speaking about the topics of life and the promotion of life in a variety of ways, but specifically with an obstetrician, gynecologist. And we're also going to speak a little bit about the challenge our country faces in protecting and welcoming the lives of migrants who are fleeing from other other places for persecution and a variety of, of, of reasons. Hey, Tom, we are right now in the uh, middle of, of kind of January-ish after yeah. Christmas. So what's your take on this time of the year? You like <laughs> this time of the year or not? Not really, Monsignor. This is like, to me, this is like the doldrums of the year because, um, you, you know, there's, like I'm a holiday person, so I like I like the festivities. I yeah, like holidays. You know, Tom, I I've been for years. I've been telling you, you we like you to become a work person, <laughs> as opposed to just somebody who likes holidays all the time. So you don't have to convince me that you're a holiday person. We'd like a little work out of you. You know, that's true. That's true. But you have to you have to have those holidays between the working months, senior. But I was going to say, um, so to me, you know, like there is bright lights in the midst valentine's day comes up you know right. and then you see the hearts go up and that's really nice and and then you know way down the road you know we're looking towards march and we begin to see you know saint patrick's day and then we have easter uh so you know i mean but i you know to me the mid-january you know it's cold uh it, it's it's damp you know I, I don't know this is not my favorite time of year Monsieur. okay i get it <laughs> so I, I mean i think i probably said this before I'm one of those people who loves change. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I, I really love the changes because mm. quite frankly, I get bored. So, <laughs> um, I, I love the fact that this is in, like in the church liturgical year, this mm -hmm. is ordinary time. Mm -hmm. And I like the fact that it's like kind of short. So ordinary time is from like kind of the beginning of January, mid-January um, until kind of February. It's a you know, month, six weeks, something like that. And then we'll go into Lent. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like this as kind of a little bit of the downtime where you kind of can fill in a number of things and, and stuff like that. So I kind of like this. I will say I felt really, really good liturgically. I was in good shape because um, right at the end of the Christmas season, mm -hmm. I took down all of my Christmas decorations. Ah, very so, good. And I put them away and I felt really good about it. So, uh, so I did that now, you know, where I live, we're in ordinary time. So all the red and the green and the stuff of, of Christmas is gone. And we're just kind of in ordinary time. And when we get to Lent, I'll bring out a little bit of purple right? so that we kind of have, have that sense. So, 
So I kind of like the changes that there. The time of the year liturgically that I don't like, mm -hmm. I don't like the time after Easter, ordinary time. Ah, because it okay. goes on forever and, <laughs> and ever and ever and ever. And I just say, enough of this. We need to break this up somehow. So um, I want to create a new liturgical season ah, like, okay. like in August or something. Mm. You, know, we'll, you know, I don't know what we'll call it. We'll call it some season but we'll get we'll come up with it so um anyway so um so why don't we tom why don't we go to our guest our guest is dr susan bain who is a doctor of obstetrics gynecology um <clears throat> she um is with the american association of pro-life obstetricians and gynecologists dr bain thank you for joining us on just love Thank you for having me. So, uh, you know, we can see each other on Zoom. Our listeners can't. They just hear your voice. Um, so um, let me ask a question this way. How'd you wind up being a doctor? <laughs> I, I actually, my best friend's dad was a pediatrician, so I thought that's what I wanted to be. And then I volunteered, went to go volunteer when I was 15 at a hospital and they wanted to draw my blood and I hated getting my blood drawn. So I, I literally said, nope, I'm not going to be a doctor. I can't, I can't get my own blood drawn, much less take someone else's. And then, you know, my brain matured and I'm in grad school getting my PhD at the University of Illinois and, um, my graduate assistantship was in a health center. And I was like, why did you decide not to be a doctor? And so I'm a bit of a book nerd. So I just did both. So they had a medical scholars program. So for 10 years, I did six years of master's and PhD and four of med school. <laughs> wow. Hey, Tom, we got a smart person on our, on our show this week. We, Indeed. We got to be careful. We got to like be, be a little bit careful with regard to that. So, uh, Anyway, but hey, Dr. Bain, thanks for taking the time to be with us and our listeners on um, on uh, Just Love. So, so now I got to ask the next question: Is how did you decide on the area of obstetrics and gynecology as your area of practice? Mm, that's a great question because you know you're introduced in medical school to all the different areas. Right. Um, I, I was absolutely fascinated with what I was taught the very first day of my rotation in medical school in the clerkship with OBGYN. I was told this is the most unique specialty in medicine because you're taking care of two patients simultaneously, oh. a maternal and a fetal patient. Oh. And that really intrigued me. Um, and then I saw my first baby be born and I was like, oh, I'm all in. And uh, it was really uh, as simple as that process. Ah, that is good. And I and I, I don't mean to diminish this, but because there are oftentimes lots of problems. But it, so I'll use say this as as a kind of a lay person, not doc. But it's kind of a happy thing because you're bringing life into the world. It's you know. I guess you have to have a different mental disposition if you're an oncologist or, you know, because you're trying to protect from what's, you know, is very life-threatening, but this is kind of 
life-giving in many ways. Yeah, it most definitely is. You know, it, it is happy until it's tragic. Right. And that's the that's one of the, the nuances of our field because, yes, um, so many of the uh, experiences we have are incredible. I was fortunate just to be in the delivery of my, my daughter uh, in December and watching my grandson be born. And amazingly beautiful experience. But I can even remember being in the room and at one point, the heart rate going way down and, and saying, okay, be patient, Susan, you're not the obstetrician here. <laughs> and, and after another contraction of it down, I, I went out to the nurses, started to go to the nurses station and they were coming in. Right. Um, and so you can, you have, and I think this is part of what attracted me is it is like an emergency department on steroids in labor and delivery sometimes right. because we have life and death situations that, we have to deal with on a dime. Um, and then when you think of the whole field of OBGYN, you know, we also often have outpatient practices where we're seeing women who do have a diagnosis of cancer. Um, you know, let's say ovarian cancer or yeah. cervical cancer, endometrial cancer. I may go into one room and be able to tell a woman who's struggling to get pregnant, guess what? You're pregnant. And my very next patient, I have to tell her we don't see a heartbeat on the baby uh, uh, doing the ultrasound. So, but I think God gave me the talent to, um, I thrive in those situations. And so I think I felt at home there also. For my own information, because I don't know the answer to this, um, I know obstetrician, gynecologists, you deal with um, moms and the baby, you know, during pregnancy and, and then during child. So uh, let me say it in a way which, you know, is a little bit maybe tongue in cheek. But, you know, after the baby comes out, you walk out of the room and then the pediatrician takes over. You know, it's it's interesting <laughs> you say that. Um, because I can remember my first C-section I watched as a medical student, and I was absolutely amazed that as soon as, you know, the baby came out, you had this team of pediatricians that took over. And you remember, in my mind, I still want to be a pediatrician because right. that's what I thought growing up. <laughs> and and then the obstetrician is spending another maybe 30 minutes or so finishing the C-section procedure because you make yeah. a big incision in the uterus, so you got to repair everything. Um, and I remember in that moment thinking, oh, wow, my job with the baby is over at this point. Is that the field I want? So your observation is exactly right on. Ah, so that, that is interesting. We're speaking with Dr. Susan Bain, who is a doctor of obstetrics gynecology, and she's with the American Association of Pro-Life obstetricians, gynecologists. So Dr. Bain, let's talk a little bit about that association. Can you yeah. speak a little bit about that for our listeners? Absolutely. So our acronym is APLOG, so American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. We've been around for 50 plus years, but we were around within another organization called ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, who um, within ACOG, there were there were members, obstetricians, gynecologists, midwives who were pro-life and pro-choice. And we actually had a special interest group for years of pro-life obstetrician gynecologists within ACOG. Unfortunately, in 2013, they did away with their special interest groups. And over time, they have become, unfortunately, very radically pro-choice. 
induced abortion without barriers, limits, regulations, and um, we were basically displaced. And so while we've been around for 50 years in terms of being a second professional medical organization in women's health, that is what we have become with our, really our goal. We really want women to be um, empowered with information when they're making uh, this massive decision that oftentimes they have with an unexpected pregnancy. Um, and we want women to really um, be empowered with great health care, both them and their, you know, children. Um, and then we, we really exist to support healthcare professionals who want to practice life-affirming medicine, who truly see that they have a maternal and a fetal patient, because sadly, um, many of my colleagues only see a maternal patient and don't see a fetal patient. So, Dr. Bain, uh, you kind of more than hinted at this, but and the you know, and and world change, things change. Um, in in the group of obstetrics gynecology, I, maybe too maybe too simple a question: Are your is your association becoming an increasingly fewer numbered group? Um, when you mean my association, so I if I left ACOG, which is what oh. I had been in for years yeah. in twenty twenty one, and. And people are leaving ACOG because in the past, our dues, um, hey, first of all, let me back up. ACOG does some tremendously good work. Right. But they've really lost their course when it comes to induced abortion. And mm. um, when I say the term induced abortion, I just want to make sure all your listeners understand that is actually defined by the Center for Disease Control as an intervention for uh, the sole purpose to um, not result in a live birth. So the intention of the intervention is to produce a dead baby, basically. Okay, so we're only talking about that because I think one of the things that happened after Dobbs is the word abortion got misunderstood to be equated to an ectopic, a spontaneous miscarriage. That is, this is completely different, okay? Um, so in terms of our organization, APLOG has about 7,000 members um, now, and we're growing. Um, and I think people are, uh, we get emails a lot from current um, APLOG and ACOG members. A lot of people hold both. Um, mm. And they have real concerns over what ACOG's position is. So I uh, thank you for clarifying that because I, I asked the question in a very cumbersome way. So I guess my question is the following. Okay. If you looked at the universe of obstetricians, gynecologists in the United States today, yes, is is are the my words the pro life cohort within the larger universe? Is it growing, stable, fewer, more, less appreciated, marginalized? What I'm, I'm asking more of a sociological question. Gotcha. So there were two studies that came out um, and they, I think the first one was 2016, 2017, that actually surveyed obstetricians and gynecologists in the United States. And 
76 to 93 percent of obstetricians and gynecologists stated they do not perform induced abortions as part of their practice. So the majority of us do not choose to directly and intentionally end the life of one of our patients, our fetal patient. All right. Um, and so I think that universe of OBGYNs um, is, is really the minority are the people who are choosing to do them. And um, what we hope at Applog to do is to really form a network so that people don't feel like they're alone. And okay. what we're really hearing from a lot is from medical students and residents who um, feel very pressured to go against their conscience. When I was a resident in the 90s, we had something called opting in, meaning if I wanted to learn and to do an induced abortion, I would let the program chair know. And if that wasn't available at my hospital, they would find a rotation. It has now completely changed to opt out. And what that means is, is the expectation is that you will participate. And there's a there's a big hierarchy and power uh, dynamic in the medical training. You have the medical student, the intern, the resident, the fellow, the attending. And so now you're you're you've got this med student or intern who's set being told go to room 25, OR 25, and assist with this DNC. And they get down there and they find out there's a living embryo or fetus, and it's hard to to stand up. Right. Um, and so that's one of the the biggest things that I think we really do a great job at Applog with is, I mean, we have medical students who say to us. I wanted to be an obstetrician when I started med school, but I'm scared to be one. And then they 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 read things that we write or listen to our podcast or attend our national conference. And they're like, okay, I can practice life-affirming medicine and be an OBGYN. So Dr. Bain, I think you answered my question by the by your using the example, not the example, the reality of the difference between opt-in and opt-out. Mm -hmm. that, you know, we've changed now where, you know, one is more considered normal yeah. than the other, you know? And, mm -hmm. and, and so, as you said, it creates a lot of both peer pressure, hierarchical pressure that moves in a certain direction. Yeah. And, and, and we we have a shortage of obstetricians and gynecologists across this country. Yeah. And, you know, to have these students, these residents, you know, maybe leave the field or not go into it um, because they're afraid that they can't practice with their conscience. Um, that's a scary situation. And I, I do think we're making an impact at APLOG uh, in, in reinforcing that you don't have to choose against let me, it. Let me pursue that a, a little bit okay. um, further because I, uh, maybe our listeners better. So if somebody wants to become an obstetrician or a gynecologist today, um, I'll use my words, not your words. Um, it's their choice as to whether they want to include the performing of abortion as part of their practice it should be okay. and it, it the hardest part is is 
what is happening in a lot of medical schools and residency training programs right. is this normalization right. that induced abortion is a part of comprehensive reproductive health care. Right. And if you go into this field, you must be willing to do it or don't choose this field. Okay. And again, I'm being a little bit technical and I, I understood exactly what you told me in terms of pressure and stuff like that. I'm just asking a very technical question now. Okay. Um, but legally it's not required. Uh, correct. Okay. Legally it is not required. The question is, is, and these students are having to navigate with right. personal statements, with yeah interviews, all those yeah. things. Uh, I, and yeah. I'm not dismissing that at all because yeah. even things that are legal or not legal, there's a tremendous environment in which it doesn't matter whether it's legal or not. There's a certain thing that is accepted and you're supposed to do it, you know, and to not do it requires right. almost extraordinary action in order to, to do it. So, yeah. And, and I think also, so we have what are what's called board certification, where we have to take boards, written and oral boards, and especially our subspecialists, like high-risk MFM doctors, um, yeah. urogynecologists. So uh, we have these very specialties, and, and you will hear, especially the maternal fetal medicine specialists who work with very high-risk pregnancies, being very fearful of of being treated differently in their oral boards and then being denied certification. Right. Um, yeah. So they have to walk that fine line. Yeah. So let me go to another topic, which is related, but it's not exactly the same. Okay. But it, it is the area of maternal health. And there's been a lot of stuff. And uh, we just last weekend, uh, we celebrated, um, the anniversary or the national holiday of Dr. Martin Luther King. But some of the stuff that has surfaced very recently is the racial disparities mm -hmm. in maternal health. Yes. Uh, particularly with Afro-American mm -hmm. women. Does that show up in your practice or the of, of obstetrics and gynecology too? Yeah, I mean, I think there's evidence that... Um, Part of the reason more Black women die, um, and that would be called maternal mortality, so deaths right. related to childbirth, um, while 70% of those are preventable, we know of that subset that um, there are biases in how African-American women are treated. And so that has to be eliminated. Those biases have to be gone and all women have to be heard um a lot of the deaths are around the postpartum period and so when a woman comes in and complains or makes a phone call um and she says look i have a severe headache and i'm swelling okay she might have postpartum preeclampsia and we may need to get her in every woman needs to be heard and so uh, while it's not the only reason women die related to pregnancy, it is a preventable one that has absolutely no place in medicine. And what what are some of the factors that are resulting in the disparity? 
what are, I'm not sure I know what you're asking. Try well, that one again. No, the question, I mean, some of the recent kind of writing has indicated there are disparities, particularly among um, Afro-American women in accessibility and treatment in maternal health. What, why? What are some of the factors? Gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm in North Carolina and we have just a report has come out on our maternal health. And when they look at trying to reduce that, that there's a whole gamut of things from the individual level. So understanding health literacy. So when people um, explain things, uh, being able to understand, oh, these are the warning signs I look to, all the way to system issues, meaning having hospitals that have systems in place for emergencies um, and everything in between. So community and family involvement. So families understanding when somebody is really sick. So it's like most things in health, it's multifactorial. Um, right. And I think we have to address it from all the different areas to reduce maternal mortality. But, you know, we have the highest in the developing world and there is no reason that maternal mortality should be so high in the United States. And the high mortality is kind of an aggregate of, of all different demographics. It's just the general rate. It is. And, and you know, we don't do a really great job in the United States actually um, collecting data with it because we actually only look at it in, we compare the number of deaths to per 100,000 live births. And in the United States, only about 60% of our pregnancies end up in a live birth. So, and and that's about, that's about 48% in African-American women. That means half of the pregnancies in African-American women end in a live birth. Okay. So we're actually missing while we data collect 30 to 50% of the reasons women who are pregnant may die. So natural losses like miscarriage or um, ectopics uh, or induced abortions aren't recorded very well in that. So we have a long way to go. We've made strides, but boy, do we still need to do a much better job um, in accounting for that. We're speaking with Dr. Susan Bain, who is a doctor of obstetrics gynecology. She is also um with an organization of pro um, of pro life um, gynecologists, obstetricians. So, uh, speak to us a little bit about uh, pregnancy care centers. How do they fit into the care of of women um, who are pregnant? Yeah, you, you know, pregnancy care centers. There are close to three thousand across the country, and. They, they are Christian organizations that really want to empower women so that when we they have an unexpected pregnancy, they have uh, many of uh, the clinics have, or many of the centers have medical clinics in them now, um, and many have more the social material resources. As a matter of fact, the movement started mainly with uh, looking at the socioeconomic barriers that lead women to decide to um, have an induced abortion. But now we have medical clinics. And in those clinics, like I serve as a medical director for three clinics in rural Eastern North Carolina. And so what we want women to do is to gr 
to, to get great medical care as she's thinking through what typically she has three legal choices. She can give birth and parent. She can give birth and be part of a decision-making team of someone else to parent, which is um, adoption, or she can give permission to a healthcare professional to end the life of her child. That's not an everyday decision. That is a huge decision. And we want her, it's her decision to make, not ours. And we're in no way trying to coerce her, but we want her to be so well-informed about how we can support with her, um, the barrier she's facing, but also the fact that her, her baby, her embryo fetus is how far along. Um, we want to make sure it's not an ectopic or a tubal pregnancy to keep her safe. Um, and we really want her to get an informed consent so she really understands the short-term and long-term risks with her decision. You know, intriguing. I'd like to hear a little bit of your experience because our experience in New York um, is that there are very few decisions being made these days of of women who, after giving birth, want to not care for their kids. The number of women who um, want to or decide to put their child up for adoption is almost non-existent, at least in the New York metropolitan area. I don't know your experience elsewhere. Yeah, sadly, we. I, I think you you represent what we also see. And right. I think one of the things, it's it's interesting because as I talk to women, I say, you know, adoption is very different than what you may have heard about. We have really transformed over the years and it can be as open and you can be as involved in your child's life as you want, or it can not be. And so I think, you know, one of the things, the beauties of our centers is if a woman is open to learning more about adoption, we can actually have an adoption agency just come and talk with her. Right. And there's no commitment, but it just allows her to learn more about it. Um, and I kind of think <laughs> this may sound strange, but um, the rescue animal world, right. you know, it's a badge of honor to have a rescue dog. And right. to, but for humans, we haven't gotten to that place yet of um, where we're willing to care for all humans um, yet. And we also haven't gotten to the place where women um, still don't feel the shame of an unexpected pregnancy. We've got to get to that place where there's not that judgment anymore, because I've had more than one woman tell me, but people will know I was pregnant. Right. Um and I think in the African-American community, what I anecdotally see is an expectation of um, I, I'm responsible for caring for this yeah. child if I choose to give yeah. birth. So, Dr. Susan Bain, thank you for the work that you do. And um, I'm glad a little blood early on didn't permanently dissuade <laughs> you from uh, pursuing uh, your career as a, as a doctor. Thank you for your generosity with, with your time. Dr. Susan Bain, a doctor of obstetrics and gynecology. Thanks for taking the time to be with us on Just Love. Thank you for having me. Take care.
Okay. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself, and our world will be more just, and it will be more compassionate. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world from the perspective of our Catholic social teaching, which Tom last week kind of ran down for us, the seven principles dealing with the dignity of the human person, are participating socially in family, participating in the civic life of our neighborhoods, of our nation, our community, solidarity across the world. We only don't care about what's going on near at home, but we are in solidarity with people in many different countries. Work is constitutive of the human person. And so the dignity of work is critically important. Um, we have a particular concern for those who are poor and vulnerable. That's where we look at what's going on in the world to see how it affects them um, in a significant way. We compare about the environment creation. And I probably have missed one or two, but those are the basic prisms through which we look at what's going on in, in the world. Um, so I am delighted that uh, a friend, a colleague, is going to join us now as our next guest, uh, Mario Russell, who is now the executive director of the Center for Migration Studies of New York. He used to be the director of the Immigration and Refugee Services uh, Division of Catholic Charities in New York. And I'm delighted that Mario is joining us on Just Love. Mario, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Good morning. Thank you, Monsignor, and thank you for having me on your uh, on your show. It's a well, and you know, I know now that you're the executive director of this prestigious national organization that you were able to find a few minutes for us. I am just so, so grateful and honored. My time is always yours, Monsignor. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, so, so Mario, um, let me ask you the question this way. I mean, what are we doing wrong in this whole world that <laughs> that we got now 110 million people who have been forced to leave their home? You know, 65 million of them, give or take, they could they had to leave their homes, but they stayed within their own country. But 35, 40 million of them, they not only had to leave their own home, they had to leave their own country. Mm. What are we doing wrong as a world that that kind of we got over a hundred million people who have been forced, not that they chose, but they've been forced to leave their home. What are we doing? Yeah. We are we are in a state of of suffering and maybe we're just much more acutely aware of it, Monsignor. I think that probably in some senses proportionally, you know, this has always been a profound problem um, where people have suffered and uh, experienced the fear and deprivation of conflicts, of political instability, of social instability. 
that probably has not really changed over time. What probably has changed is the possibility of greater mobility, right? Over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Mm -hmm. And that therefore people are in a maybe greater position to move, to flee, to seek safe haven elsewhere. Uh, maybe that means internally, as you said, right? The internally displaced in their own countries, but those who also are able to 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 move onward. You know. So, listen, we have crises and conflicts everywhere in the world, and it seems that every year we say, "This year is the worst." Right. It may be, but I think it's really the phenomenon of movement and the facility and the ability to move that has changed over time. And that said, we got to do something about it. We can't just sit and watch or wring our hands. And we do have a duty and a responsibility. And frankly, another way to say it is an opportunity. Okay, so what do we got to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny or not, because we got to do more in a time when it's harder to do that at least at the level of conversation and political and social will. So we're in a really difficult moment. I mean, I think whether it's the United States or Europe or elsewhere, the conversation on migration is is not a good one, right? It's it's strained, it's politicized, it's polarized. And the need to do more and to do better, and for that we can even start with with our own boss in 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 Rome, right? Uh, who, who really has made this a signal issue to say it's a it's a humanitarian need it's an it's a need about people and individuals so what do we do well first of all we have to probably figure out how to talk to each other about this and and we can look at this probably in in different countries in europe but certainly we can start to sort of see how we do this in our own home in our own backyard here in, in the united states um and i'll i'll be the first to admit it's a hard lift it's a hard lift to have this conversation when opinions are dead set on one side or the other, when it's more convenient to exaggerate facts than to try to find what they are in the middle. And speaking of the middle, even if you have a disagreement about the facts, which one shouldn't probably, but you certainly have a disagreement about the policies, it's not impossible to have some agreement in the middle about a way forward. As an example, everybody fundamentally agrees that we need to reform the American immigration system. Everybody agrees. I'm exaggerating, but I'm going to say over 70% of Americans do. But why can't we do it? We agreed that it needs to be done. So why can't we do it? Why can't we have that conversation? Well, Mario, let me, for the sake of our listeners, to just create two unrealistic um, not unrealistic. I, I I plead guilty to the exaggeration in what I'm going to say next, okay? Because we can't reform the system because some people say, oh, yes, we got to reform the system. We build a wall. We don't let anybody in. And that's what we do. And then we got others who say, well, just do away with the system, take down all the walls and all the barriers, and we let everybody in. So we agree that it should be reformed, but what that reform looks like, we ain't anywhere as close to an agreement. Yeah, that's right. We're not. 
you know, and and I certainly think that we've got to we've got to deal with the arguments in the margins, but I don't think that they're credible, right? right. Whether it's no walls or all walls, both right. of them don't work, right? And you, Monsignor, this radio show, and I think the perspective of our own institutions that we work with don't see those as credible arguments on either side for the most part. So the answer is what works? What's both rational, sensible, and just? So perhaps we have a cultural problem, right? A problem at the deepest level, which says, are we kind of afraid of who's coming into America these days, of what they look like, of the language they speak. And so we're having a little bit of a challenge bending our imaginations to say, now, this is really the way it's always been. What was true 130 years ago with Irish, Italians, German Catholics coming in, and they were arguably scary looking people, I suppose. So what did we do? We had a different way of understanding and said, look, we need you. We need you for a variety of reasons. We need you to build America. We need you to run our shops. We need you to create new communities. And this is how we're going to do it because this is probably how we've always done it. Right. And I tend to think, Monsignor, we're not really different in this spot today, but we right. have a cultural problem. We have an identity problem. And a lot of us on one side of this argument or the other look far back in time and somehow either romanticize it as being really different back then my grandparents came in through the right way. Right. Well, what was the right way? I would submit the right way was a completely different way. Right. And today, today's way doesn't work. It doesn't meet the needs of the moment. Back so, in 18, Mary, it, yeah. So we're speaking with Mary Russell, who is the executive director of the Center for Migration Studies of New York. And a little bit, I have a little bit of a biased opinion on the next thing I'm going to say one of the most knowledgeable immigration attorney practitioners uh, in the entire United States. So I'm really grateful that he is being with us. Mario, uh, let's let's jump ahead. And I want to do a little preview. And for our listeners, we're probably going to talk a little bit more about this in the future. But it is our Catholic um, institution, our Catholic church, that is at the center of this, whether it be our parishes, our schools, our think tanks, like the Center for Migration Studies, whether it be our Catholic charities agencies, our Catholic, we are the ones who are actually doing the welcoming, the serving, the integrating of the migrants who are coming here. And so I set that up <clears throat> is because I'm delighted that Catholic Charities USA is convening a group of people to kind of talk about that and what we should be doing in order to deal with some of the issues that Mario has has addressed. Um, so Mario, what what hopes might you have for our convening next week in terms, what might we do as the institution or the institutions the Catholic Church, our various different agencies, how can we be a more robust part of 
solving at least some of this problem? I think there's enormous amount of opportunities that lie ahead, particularly in this year. It's an important year. It's an election year. Um, certainly, the meeting we have next month is one of those opportunities to think strategically, to think broadly as a Catholic community. One thing I would say that's important that needs to come out of this is probably a reinforcement of the strengths of what we do well. There's a lot of information out there that seems to suggest that Catholics are helping migrants cross illegally. So the strengthening, I think, is in the messaging. We need to better message the truth and the value of what we do, which is not to help, to promote, to incite, or to arrange or coordinate, right, the illegal migration of anybody. Right. What Catholic institutions do is welcome, but in the sense that you mean it, which is when they're here, we're going to receive you. We're not going to turn you away. We're not going to put you in the street. We're going to give you a coat, a cot, whatever it is that it takes to just recognize your dignity and respect you for that and to move on wherever you need to be and however you need to be. It's simply caring for people, no different from the work we've always done, whether it's with the homeless, or the hungry, with the detained with children. So messaging and education and really standing up to the work that we do well. I also think, though, and this is incredibly important, too, is that, frankly, we need to be speaking from a policy perspective. We need to be thinking of and developing solutions and standing by those. I'm sensing sometimes that as a community, we're throwing our own hands up in the air and accepting the dialogue as it is. Example, right now, Congress is, I'll use the word debate, but maybe it's discussing or negotiating over some border protection initiatives that somehow have been made to relate to funding for the war in Ukraine and in Israel or in Gaza. And, you know, these things are completely unrelated. But for some reason, we as a Catholic community are not speaking about and into that space and offering solutions about how to manage the border, about how to protect the process of asylum, how to protect the process of family reunification. And a lot of these pieces that I just mentioned are being, in a sense, negotiated away in order to fund right, support for these military efforts in Ukraine and Israel. I would submit that the Catholic Church, we, whoever it is that we're talking about, are in a position to speak about practical solutions at the border that don't just involve taking away individual rights, pushing away people, or limiting their access to asylum, which is really what's being put on the table. We can talk about, yes, maybe we do regulate the border, but maybe we do it with particular time and conditions, triggers, and restrictions, not unlimited. Right. Maybe we do talk about how to reduce the backlog in our immigration system. How do we fix prop support a system that is way too old right. and no longer made to function today as it was 30, 40 years ago. Why can't we talk about expanding, Monsignor, the capacity of field office operations on the southern border to again regulate the flow of folks? Right. But these things are not on the table in the discussion. Right.
Yeah. So, Mary, we're speaking with Mary Russell, who's the executive director of the Center for Migration Studies uh, in New York. Um, and Mary, I think those are all good points. I would probably also put on the table where I kind of think we have not fulfilled an opportunity and responsibility that we have as Catholic institutions. The reality is that the Catholic Church on many issues is not uh, monolithic. And if you look at the, uh, we have people who are on both sides of the issues and lots of people on both sides. What we have not done is gotten beyond people like me and you <laughs> to people who are sitting, quote unquote, in the pews in our schools and places to foster the dialogue among people who disagree with each other in, in a way that maybe there can be greater understanding of that. And that's an area which requires a lot more work, is a lot more risky, but at the end of the day, maybe a lot more productive. So anyway, but anyway, so. I agree with that 100%. Yeah. Um, I would only add to that, too, that it, there should be room for that, right? Like, we yeah. can get there, potentially, and it's incredibly hard. But I think what I think is important for the for us as institutions is to say, we don't want to just say you got to do these things for migrants because it comes from a pious command. Right. There's a host of other reasons, right? right? Including work, including rational security issues, including understanding why people come and what they need and that they don't come to take. Yeah. They don't come to take jobs, but to make things yeah. and understanding that this is our history and it's how we've done it and how probably the people in the pews own ancestors did it. And it's OK. It's not dangerous or scary. Mario, thank you. I will enjoy continuing our conversation next week when we go down to the DC area. Mario Russell, Executive Director of the Center for Migration Studies of New York. Just love. Sounds Just good. do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. Thank you for being with us this week. And this week we talked about a number of themes that are important to us from our uh, Catholic perspective. We spoke about the dignity of life at all stages of its existence, whether it be very young or whether it be life that is threatened in other countries coming to the United States. So thank you for being with us. This is the Catholic Channel. Join us again next week on Sirius XM 129.
listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.